it was just horrendous, you know, when they did get these diseases and they didn't always have the medication out there. Some of the men were so desperate that they just really didn't even bother to put their trousers back on because it was it was awful. But the one thing they did, and they were all very proud of it, and she does mention it in the diary, when they came back from any skirmish, first thing they did was clean their guns and the second thing they did was wash themselves and their clothes. So they always, you know, that personal cleanliness was was paramount and it must have been so difficult for all of them when if there wasn't a river or a dam or a lake or something handy, it was really difficult. I'm Anne Dibbon and this is Unexpected Turns, where we delve into the lives of some really incredible people whose lives have taken an unexpected turns. We've heard some fascinating stories from our World War II survivors and today we hear the memoirs of a WASPy with the Forgotten Army. But who were the WASPies and how were they connected to the Forgotten Army? Well today we hear the story of one WASPy, Maria Pilbury, Elizabeth Lockhart's aunt. And it was only after her aunt died that Elizabeth found her aunt's diary and began to pierce together the amazing story of her life. Listen on to find out more. Welcome for joining us today, Liz. It's a delight to have you here. And I'm really excited to hear all about your aunt's diaries, how you discovered them and what happened since. Thank you, Anne. As you know, I originated from Kenya, Kenya as it's called now, and I grew up on a farm. So did my aunt. Um, her parents emigrated after the First World War. When there were no jobs in England, they took up the soldier settlement scheme and you know, travelled to Kenya and, as the saying goes, bought a farm in Africa. And what year was this, Liz? Um, the grandparents went up, my grandparents, 1924. Right. Our grandfather was in in the army and, you know, after the, the Great War, jobs were few and far between. Mm. So um, a lot of the officers were offered this um, scheme. They took it up because Granny's uncle, Raymond Hook, who was a very interesting man, Another story. <laughs> um, lots of stories in my family. Yes, there are. Um, he was already out there with his brother Logan, and they encouraged Granny and Grandfather to go out. So they did. And my mum, who was the eldest, Mariah, who was the middle, and my uncle travelled out, out by sea to Kenya, where they were to start up a farm which um they did that was some undertaking traveling at that time wasn't it by sea yeah it it took a, a fair length of time um i think it was about three weeks the Suez canal was open right oh it was but yeah it was it was an interesting journey they actually traveled with the then duke and duchess of york oh right our late queen's mother and father gosh another story <laughs> anyway, when I left Kenya, because 
of various personal things and came over here. I didn't know anybody. And Mariah sort of rather took me under her wing. She never went back to Kenya after the war. She stayed here. So after the Second World War, yeah. she came straight to the UK. <clears throat> she came straight to the UK from Burma. When you came to England, you then went to live with her, didn't you? I spent a lot of time with her. I didn't actually go and live with her. I lived with right, okay. my ex-boss, who was nearer to Gatwick, where I was working. Yeah. But, you know, I spent all my weekends and everything with her because I didn't know anybody. So built up new friends and things, but she was, she was my base. We need that. So when she died, it was... Well, it was it was it was devastating. We became really, really close. Mm. She died in 1988. She had no children, so I think she sort of treated me as the daughter she never had. And we just had loads of fun, and she was lovely. But when she was young and during the war, in particular, people smoked really, really heavily, and um, it got her in the end, and she. She had emphysema, so she died, Right, I think, too young. She was only just 71. I'm a lot older than that now. And it was very sad and it was very horrid. And when I cleared her house, because she left the contents of her house to me, I found a tiny wee scruffy diary, handwritten, and in a bag with the diary were some notes and some letters and there were a lot of photograph albums. Now, I knew she'd been a Wasby during the war, but I didn't really know what a Wasby was, no. and I knew it involved her working in Burma with the army, but that was about all I knew. The family sort of just said, well, of course, you know that Ra, as we called her, you know, she, she was a Wasby. And I once asked Mariah, to tell me about her time over there and she wouldn't she said I wouldn't understand mm. she didn't want to talk about it and please don't ask me again so I didn't mm. so it was quite a surprise when I was going through her desk and her papers to find these things and along with them I found a military MBE medal with its citation, signed by George VI, and also other army accolades and letters and things are mentioned in dispatches. Wow. Anyway, long and the short of it, one of her friends or a couple of her friends said to me, you've got Ra's diary. She would like you to write the story, which... She never got round to. Mm. For various reasons, I think probably one of them was she couldn't bring herself to dig up those memories, which weren't all good. It was pretty tough. Yes. So I sort of looked at the diary and I looked at some of the letters and I looked at some of the notes and they weren't in order. And I thought, well, really, can I do this? No, I'm trying to keep my company afloat. And, you know, in those days, it was a hideous recession, far worse than we have now. And it was nose to the grindstone. I was working very, very long hours. And so 
I put it all in a little box, quite a big box actually, <laughs> and I left it until I retired. And then somebody said to me, you have got something to do now that you're retired. Get on and write that story. Mm. This was 20 years ago nearly, wasn't it? Yeah, um, I started it in 2002 and I really didn't finish it much before. I had dry periods because there was nothing out there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, the internet really, there was no such thing when I first looked up, started working on it. And, you know, the internet relies on what people put on it. Well, nobody knew about these women. So there was very little on the internet. I went to the Imperial War Museum. They had a few letters and um, one little government booklet, for want of a better expression, about the Wasbys and what they did. Well, I already had that. It sort of gave me a background-ish. And then I spoke to a few of them. And I sort of got involved in it and I thought these guys need to be recognised. Because nobody knew then in 2002 anything about the Wasbys. I mean, can you explain a bit about them and how you actually found these other women? Yes, I I can. Having sort of gone through everything and collated it and put it all in the right order and had a look at the books, um, I spoke to a couple of them who were her friends and I knew they'd been out there together. And I sort of said, you know, help me along. And to a certain extent, they did. But I feel if I'm going to tell you the story about them, and they were very brave, and it was a very small group. There were sort of 20, 30, and it went up to 80 until finally at the end of the war, I think it went up to a couple of hundred. Mm. But not all of those were in the field, and Mariah was in the field. So the Wardsbys, they were the Women's Auxiliary Service Burma. Mm. Mariah joined them having left Kenya in 1943 to join her husband, who was with the army and was at that time stationed in India. He sent her a telegram and said, join me, Quetta you know, see you soon. Right. So she packed all her little belongings in Kenya and <clears throat> got on a boat. During the war. During the war. Yeah. Not got on a boat in Mombasa and not a passenger liner, it was a cargo ship. Um and travelled to Bombay. They were followed by a submarine, but um thankfully uh, they weren't torpedoed, although the sister ship that went out later on was, mm. and one of her cousins was on it and sadly went down. Perished. So she arrived in Bombay knowing absolutely nobody, and she had to get herself up to Quetta in what is now Pakistan, which is where he was at officer training school. Mm. So uh, there were floods. And she was the we, only one. She hadn't gone with the group. She was the only one making her way that way, wasn't she? She was absolutely yeah. on her own, knowing nobody and nothing, coming from a very protected background. So, I mean, she must have been very, very brave. And young. She was only in her early 20s, wasn't she? She was 22, 23. Yeah. And 
when she got there, there there'd been floods and she couldn't get up to Quetta. The rivers had broken their banks. And anyway, eventually, finally, she got up there using little local boats and things and stayed with him for a while and then got the clear message that things weren't right in their marriage. And he said, I think you better go home. All right. Okay. And either she couldn't or she wouldn't. I would like to say perhaps she couldn't because travel in those days wasn't that easy. But it's more likely because she's she was quite stubborn. <laughs> she wouldn't. Yeah, good for her. She didn't want to be, you know, her marriage just to be washed away. She was very happy. He was a very handsome man, but I think he was a bit of a womanizer. But she wasn't going to give in easily. So she trudged back to Bombay and got the odd job. Wasn't very happy. He wasn't cooperative. Uh, and then it got to the point where she probably really couldn't go home without eating humble pie. So having worked for a few government organisations in and around Bombay and then down in the centre of India in the Tamil Nadu region, she got wind that this little group of women were looking for recruits. So um, she felt she fitted the bill. And what was the bill then? The paper that she found read... Join the Wasbys. The 14th Army needs you. The criteria was that recruits had to be physically fit, willing to turn their hand at anything and have an ability to rough it when necessary. A knowledge of typing and bookkeeping and an ability to drive would be useful. Okay. In the main, they were the wives and daughters of military personnel missionaries and colonial expats from England, Australia and New Zealand who found themselves in India and Burma Mm. when war was declared. So this is directly for the 14th because that's become famous hasn't it with Captain Tom everybody is now aware of that aren't they? Absolutely. Um, The 14th army which is known as the Forgotten Army um, and really was, Mm. was actually the largest Commonwealth army ever assembled with nearly a million men under arms, recruited from 20 nations, speaking over 100 languages, with numerous faiths and customs, differing dietary requirements. And this is to whom they were assigned. Yeah. And so she applied? She applied and they accepted her application and she was sent a train ticket to take her from Coimbatore, which is in sort of the Kerala area um, of India, sort of in the middle of India. And she had to travel down to Madras, uh, then up to Calcutta. And here I'm using the old names, not the new names. And from Calcutta up mm. to Shillong in Assam. And she did this all on her own. Yeah. And the country was at war. As one of the people I spoke to in India when I was doing my research said, she must have been a very brave lady. 
Well, she was. Yes, definitely. So she got up there and she joined them in April 1944. And they consisted, as I said earlier, of a group of about 80 women and they ran mobile and static canteens for Bill Slim's 14th Army. Uh, initially, the canteens were at um, base camps, rail stations, seaports, uh, aerodromes, and later they um, had converted for them Chevrolet vans, and they became uh, mobile canteens, which they would drive into the forests and up into the mountains where the men were fighting the Japanese. The front line, yeah close to the front line. It was pretty hard work. Temperature could go up to 110 degrees Fahrenheit and more. Uh, there were mozzies and endless flies. Uh, it was very, very humid, very long hours. Uh, they lived under canvas, mostly, um, although if they were sort of at a railhead in a town or a transit camp in a town, then they might live in a sort of broken down basher local dwelling no mod cons at all really they had camp showers and if there was no shower then they'd, they'd use a bucket mm. um, and a little camp basin so you know life was tough there were n no niceties they lived with the men um, they worked with the men and the hours were long you know then they were on the war line. They were. And if they were meeting incoming and outgoing troop trains, you know, they'd be up two, three o'clock in the morning meeting the trains, feeding, for want of a better expression. The men, they would make literally gallons of tea in big 40-gallon drums boiled over bonfires, really. This was all sort of doled up with jugs. Mm. Um, they made the cakes and biscuits and all sorts of goodies for the men. And in the mobile vans, of course, they had sort of consumables for the men in the field who couldn't get back to camp. So things like soaps and toothpastes and pens and pencils and paper and, you know, anything to make the men's lives a little bit less gruesome because... It wasn't nice. They were miles away from home. Mm. A lot of the Africans and a lot of them were from Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Nigeria, the two Rhodesias, uh, South Africa. You know, they, they didn't even know really why they were there because it was British colonies and because they were, you know, part of the British army in those countries or their own um, armies in the individual companies they were called up. And they went and they did their job and they did their job very well. Yeah. Uh, in the main, the 14th Army was probably, I don't know accurately the percentage, but I would say probably more than 60, 70% it was Indian Army. And later on, the Americans came in uh, and the Chinese were on our side as well, mm. fighting a very ruthless enemy, the Japanese. Mm. And it was either on the plains, which were hot and dry and horrible, or mainly in the jungle. A lot of the men suffered from jungle fever, jungle sores, malaria, all sorts of nasty tropical diseases. 
it was just horrendous, you know, when they did get these diseases and they didn't always have the medication out there. Some of the men were so desperate that they just really didn't even bother to put their trousers back on because it was it was awful. But the one thing they did, and they were all very proud of it, and she does mention it in the diary, when they came back from any skirmish, first thing they did was clean their guns and the second thing they did was wash themselves and their clothes. So they always, you know, that personal cleanliness was was paramount and it must have been so difficult for all of them when if there wasn't a river or a dam or a lake or something handy, it was really difficult. All water had to be boiled because it was impure. You know, everything was chucked in the lakes, including bodies. Dreadful. And the girls lived amongst them. Mm. They never complained. They were always there. Uh, they undertook to provide recreational facilities for the men. Um, there would be dances at main HQ camps. Mm. Dances twice a week. Then there would be ENSA shows. That's um, where Vera Lynn comes in. She was a member of ENSA and she went out for a couple of weeks and I think she was out there for probably three, four weeks. And um, she performed for the men and um, she became their sort of, she was the force's sweetheart. As we all know, ENSA being Entertainment's National Service Association. And they, they, they provided all sorts of entertainment and you know, mainly, of course, films, stage shows, raconteurs, singers musicians and then when yes. that wasn't on the girls put on dances and uh, you know they gathered to pull their records together and usually one of them had a gramophone so there was music most nights in the base camp which was sometimes as close as six or seven miles to the front line mm. so they were within hearing of fire and when they went out and about in their vans, if they were with a frontline division, which eventually Mariah was, they had armed guards. And at one point, the girls themselves were issued with revolvers to protect themselves. Gosh. But, you know, they, they never complained and the men absolutely loved them. Mm. And they would be driving in the forest and suddenly they'd see a little notice board on a tree that would say either you know wasby's welcome or wasby's please call they were a huge huge morale boost to the men at last a lot of the men said you know it really wasn't the place for women mm. they appreciated them hugely and i've got some lovely original and copies of letters of thanks yeah not just from the men themselves but, you know, from the hierarchy, uh, a lovely letter was written by Lord Mountbatten. Bill Slim wrote a lovely letter thanking the Wasbys for what they'd, they'd done and, you know, what a boost they were to the men. They were appreciated by everybody. Mm. And as I say, she was awarded an MBE. Whilst I know these days they dish them out like sweeties. They didn't then. They really didn't then. And only six Wasbys were awarded an MBE. The lady, Ninian Taylor, who started them up, 
ended up with an OBE, which was lovely. Um, I, you know, I feel in this day and age, they would have given her much, much more than that. Mm. But once the war was over, they all felt they really hadn't done very much. Really? Um, and they didn't really want to talk about it. Well, they did a lot. Mm. Okay, they didn't fly aeroplanes like some of them, and they didn't chop wood like the lumberjills. Um, but they but were on the front line with the Japanese. Not far away. And that was a ruthless fight. It was beastly. It was absolutely beastly. And all during this time, you know, she was aware that her marriage had gone to the wall. And actually, she did meet her husband, Peter, in the middle of nowhere one day. He was in a line of men at the back of the van, waiting for his coffee and other bits and bobs that he might have wanted. Um, And they came to face to face and he didn't know she was there. And she had an idea he was coming because they knew that that particular regiment was in their area, but it was quite a shock for him. Initially, she operated the canteens in in India, in places like Chittagong and Dohazari, of course, the main place up in Shillong, and, and other points in India. Then in December 1944, she headed up her own canteen, and she was two two of the first canteens to be flown into Burma, because by that stage, Britain was England, with the help of the Americans, were starting to push the Japanese back. Good. So they were no longer defending, they were um, advancing. Mm. So she joined them Christmas 1944, and they had Christmas in the jungle. Right. Her supplies uh, were all flown in because the infrastructure in Burma had been com- completely destroyed by the Japanese, so no railways, the roads were pretty crap. So all their supplies, ammunition, medical, food, uh, came in by parachute. Mm. The only division who was solely reliant on parachute drops, which were undertaken by the American US Army Air Force. Right. They had a cook because the division can comprise up to many thousands of men. I mean, the division is probably about 10,000 men. Wow. Um, the 36th Division, who she was with, was a fair few thousand. Mm. British, Australian, New Zealand, and Indian, and probably African troops. And they helped basically um, with the the whole supply chain supply chain yeah i mean there was a, a big bulk depot which which flew it all in but they yeah they were there and they ran the canteens you said they issued her with a rifle did she ever get herself into a situation where she was actually right up by the fighting and um no they had times when they weren't allowed to go out of the perimeter of the base camp because it was too dangerous or they'd be sent up back the line to a, a previous um, spot because it was right. dangerous for them to be um, with the, the troops who were fighting. Yeah, I can imagine. So she was there in December 2014. Sorry, 19, 1914. Uh, she went through until the recapture of Rangoon um, 
and cessation well the Japanese surrendered as you probably know after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki Hiroshima yeah and then at that time she was in Rangoon so they got involved with the repatriation of prisoners of war some of whom had been mm. on the notorious Burma railway one became her second husband but at, at the time she didn't meet him when she was there and he'd been a prisoner of war he had and that is a nasty nasty tale yes and he actually died very young in his i think he was only 56 when he died as a result he died of kidney failure from they said caused by his treatment in those camps and he, they weren't in just one camp. People talk about Changi. Well, Changi actually was just the holding prison when Singapore fell. That's where the Japanese put everybody. Mm. Um, and he was in Singapore then. Then they were put on trains and they were sent. Some went to Japan, some went to Korea. But most of them um, went onto the Burma Railway, which was to link Burma and Thailand. Thailand having fallen, fallen quite early mm. uh, and they just went from hideous camp to hideous camp hacking out the jungle and laying the railway line mm. and it said for every sleeper laid one man died yeah. that is a really really horrible statistic yeah and I think that's the reason why she wouldn't tell me her story mm. and I've had to rely on word of mouth and anecdotes from the few remaining Wasbys I was able to talk to in the early 2000s. Mm. But my book really just tells her little story, gives you a bit of a feeling of, of what it was like. And reading between the lines, you can tell how brave they were. Mm. And there was there was no contact with the outside world there was no radio there was no internet there's no mobile phone there was nothing they were in no. the middle of the jungle with nothing they couldn't even have a shower they didn't even have a mirror so they didn't know what they looked like themselves yeah until they, they got to a you know one stage they got to a, a beaten up remnants of a, a semi-destroyed town and there was a sort of palace there which the Japanese had used as their headquarters and there, there were a few mirrors mm. and they sort of looked at themselves and thought oh my gosh because they were all sort of yellow yet their complexions had turned yellow because they were having to take mepocrine for as an anti-malarial prophylactic she went on to do all sorts of wonderful things. She didn't stop in Burma. She went on for an extra year. So her war actually ended a year after cessation of fighting. And she came back to England um, and, like me, started up afresh, a new life, knowing just her few was-be friends, and that was it. So, yeah, long and the short of it was she came back to UK. She got a job in London in the fashion industry. She was a, a compare at fashion shows. 
Um, she had always sort of relied on her sewing skills and she liked her clothes and she was she was very glamorous. Oh, wow. You'll have to send me a picture of her. I know she looks like you. Well, I'll send you each a copy of the book. I'll send one to, to Bev's um, because I am trying to promote the book. Most of the proceeds go to the Burma Star Memorial Fund, which I think is what she would like me to do. Definitely. So, um, and I'm very proud that she was one of these amazing women. And through her job in the fashion industry, she met her second husband, who owned a woolen mill up in Yorkshire. Gosh. And they got married. And she felt she found happiness Gosh. at long last. And, you know, the family and she and everybody were over the moon. But what we didn't know was he was a very sick man. And six months after he died... And her whole life fell apart and she sort of had a semi-breakdown. Mm. But she was picked up by one of her Wasby friends. And, you know, that little group of women remained good, good friends for the rest of their lives. And it was through them and some of the newsletters which used to come out on a regular basis that I got the telephone number and addresses of some of the women who were with her and knew her and where I got loads of lovely anecdotes of their times, their times with Marah and, you know, the things that they did. It wasn't all doom and gloom. They had huge fun. And I'm sure they had little dalliances here and there. <laughs> you say she met her second husband in Yorkshire, he, but... Didn't you say earlier that he was also a prisoner? Of yeah, he had been on the railway. He'd been a Japanese POW. Um, it's it's really heart heart wrenching to read his letters to the family, right. and but it was it was horrendous. He was a big man, and he ended up coming back here weighing about seven stone. I mean, they were they were skeletal. It was wicked, wicked what happened to them in those camps. Absolutely wicked. And I feel that's why she would never talk no. to me about her time out there. But even the men of the 14th Army stuck together and they continued to meet annually um, at the Royal Albert Hall. And they would invite the Wasbys as the mm. only women to their what they called deco reunion um and yeah. that was held until 1995 you know i am not going to have the wasbys remain the forgotten women of the forgotten army no i mean like we said earlier you know it's because of captain tom that the forgotten army was talked about but the wasbys you know that's still nobody ever mentioned that and are any of those women still alive? Because they would again be a hundred. No, I, well, I want to say no. I think one might still be alive and I have a feeling she's in Kenya. I haven't heard that she's died, but if they were still alive, they wouldn't have been in the field. Yeah. Because if Ra had still been alive, I mean, she was born in 1918, so... She would be a hundred and four. 
Mm. And she, she was one of the, the young ones, but the really young ones were not allowed to go into the field. Right. Yeah. So they would never have experienced what she did. They would have been at base camps. And <clears throat> at the end of the war, a, a lot were recruited to help out with repatriation, not just of um, POWs, as in men, but the unfortunate women who'd been um, in Malaya and um, Burma and had been sent to dreadful internment camps. Yeah. And you read some really harrowing stories about, about what they went through. Mm. And in the book, Marah touches on what it was like for them and, um, you know, the horrors of meeting the women and children who'd been incarcerated for years. Yeah, because she stayed on, didn't she, after the war finished, as you said, she stayed on for a year and helped. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, it was when she was with the 36th Division that um, she got her medal. Yeah. She never told anybody about it. None of them did, as I said earlier. They all just felt they hadn't done anything. They were just doing their bit. Um, there is uh, a memorial tree for them, which has been planted um, at the National Memorial Arbor Arboretum in, in Staffordshire. But I haven't been up there to see it. All right. Well, it's fascinating, Liz. I'm so pleased that you found these that she wrote them and that you put them together as a book. It's quite amazing to hear it all. Well, I'll send you a book. It's called Frontline and Fortitude. And boy, did they have fortitude. They certainly did have fortitude. It's available on Amazon and it's available from me via the internet. Wow. Well, thank you, Liz. It has been fascinating listening to you and you have as you say so so many stories to tell you are clearly come from a very strong family and very strong women yes the women in our family were very strong and yeah it was a family of sort of pioneers and adventurers wow anyway i'd like to end with the kohima epitaph which is linked to the 14th army and yeah. that reads when you go home Tell them of us and say, for your tomorrow, we gave our today. And a lot of very, very brave men died in that dreadful war. All was dreadful, but that was a particularly unpleasant one. Yeah, it was. Well, it's just emotional just listening to that little bit. Well, there's, thank you. Well, thank you, Anne, for inviting me to talk to you. As well as Liz, we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for joining us in our first series. It has been an amazing learning experience for myself and my co-hosts, Beverly and Julie. And we look forward to you joining us for our second series, which will start in April 2023. Meanwhile, we will be publishing a series of bonus episodes. The first will be out in two weeks time on the 12th of January 2023 and it'll be the unedited version of Aileen Tattersall's episode. So until then, goodbye and take care. 